start with our motivation. So all of us uh, want to experience the highest happiness and be free from all misery. And the way to do that is to attain nirvana, and specifically the non-abiding nirvana of the fully awakened ones. And the key to doing that is to realize the nature of reality, the emptiness of inherent existence. And so it is this topic to which we turn this evening. So keep in mind why we're learning this, so we can attain full awakening for our own purpose and also for the purpose of all living beings. Okay, so we finished talking about the emptiness of persons and of phenomena. And we're on the section now on the two truths, uh, specifically the outline that says the literal explanation of conventional and truth. So I'm just going to read from the text right now and uh, then go back and explain it just so you get the transmission. Again, I'm not totally happy with this translation, but uh, it is what it is. Okay. So persons who have abandoned ignorance perceive things, forms, and so on as mere conventionalities. For persons who grasp true existence, since in the eyes of their grasping true existence things exist truly, they, meaning the objects, are known as veiled truths. Veiled truths are not established by grasping true existence. It is not just because in the eyes of grasping true existence something exists truly that it is established as a veiled truth. In the eyes of the persons who have overcome grasping true existence, conventionality alone is posited, not true existence. However, in their eyes, veiled truths are perceived. So this has a lot of technical terms. If you haven't been following the series, you may feel a little bit lost for good reason, but it's okay. I'll go back and explain some of this, and it is more advanced, so if you don't understand everything, just, it's fine. <laughs> okay. Okay. The divisions of the conventional. These Vatantrikas who assert that perception exists by way of its own characteristics refute the term uh, real and unreal in relation to subjects, but admit them for objects. In the present system, the classification into real and unreal accomplished by worldly conventional reliable cognizers is laughable. For that reason, although with respect to a few innate worldly minds, the classification into real and unreal is spoken of in this system, it is not reason enough to establish the existence of real and unreal conventionalities. Given that it is impossible for the way conventionalities appear to be compatible with the way they exist, they can only be falsities. Then the next headline is about con uh, ultimate truth, and so explaining the meaning of ultimate and of truth. 
since it is the meaning perceived by a mind focusing on emptiness. And it is ultimate, in other words, best. It is uh, the ultimate meaning, and since it is unmistaken, it is called truth. Okay, and then they have the uh, definition of ultimate truth, the actual meaning. An irrefutable definition of an ultimate truth is any phenomenon that while being recognized by a reliable cognizer as ultimate is found by a reliable cognizer of the ultimate. Although all that exists is posited as existing by conventional minds, not all that conventional minds posit necessarily exists. In the present system, true cessation and nirvana are considered to be ultimate truths. Nevertheless, their existence is confirmed by conventional minds. And then rejecting qualms. In the superior wisdom of a Buddha knowing reality, one distinguishes appearance and perception of emptiness. The the perception has no duality. Some assert that nirvana is not a knowable entity and that at the Buddha's level there is nothing to know, in which case all the effort made to attain such a state of ignorance would be pointless. When it is said that their minds do not move, it refers to wrong uh, thinking, i.e. grasping uh, true existence. Objects do not appear as existing truly to Buddha's natural perceptions, but what appears to others appears to them. All these appear to Buddha because they are omniscient. Although the Buddha's superior wisdom that knows reality and diversity are of one nature, the former is known as probing awareness and the latter as a consciousness of the conventional, according to the way the object is perceived. Therefore, although the two objects of the two kinds of perception are not mutually exclusive, it is asserted that the two subjects are entirely mutually exclusive. And the explanation of the division of ultimate truth, ultimate truths can be divided into 16. If condensed, it is certain that there are two kinds of selflessness. As for the terminology, actual, ultimate, and uh, concordant ultimate, the great followers of the Svatantrika tenets assert these. Although Tibetans refer to them with the terms concordant and non-concordant, the interpretation of the former terminology is that they refer to non-conceptual and conceptual perceptions of the ultimate, along with their objects. It is posited that the former two are actual ultimates and the latter two concordant ultimates. This is the Svatantrika interpretation. Furthermore, of the two elaborations, that of true existence and that of duality, neither is found in the former perception, but duality is found in the latter. In the same way, there are two emptinesses that are objects. In the eyes of the former subject, the two kinds of elaborations are absent, the latter is established as an ultimate by the mere absence of true existence. Okay. And then showing the certainty of the truth as being two in number, since something is either mistaken or unmistaken, and there is no possibility, noble entities are definitely one of the two truths. Okay. Now, 
that that is all totally clear. <laughs> okay, we'll uh, look a little bit at uh, what it means. So this is the whole topic called The Two Truths, and uh, it's quite an important topic. Okay, so the two truths are, are um, conventional or veiled truth, and then the ultimate truth. Um, and I must say, the, this translation as conventional or veiled and then ultimate is much better than the initial translation of the two truths when I first came along uh, to Buddhism, which was relative and absolute. And that's very, very misleading because, um, you know, it sounds like, okay, some things are relative and other things exist absolutely, like inherently. And uh, then it gets quite confusing, okay? So we don't use those terms anymore um, because of that. Because you take uh, emptiness and... uh, you know, if you say it's an absolute truth, it sounds like it's far away and never, never land and existing on its own, independent of everything else. And that's not what emptiness is. Okay, it's the deeper mode of existence. That's what ultimate means. You know, when you go deeper, what do you find? The final mode of existence. Okay, so... um Yeah, so in the context of the four truths, the four noble truths... Yeah, then um, three of them are conventional truths and one is ultimate truth, which is the one that's the ultimate truth. Yeah, third one, true cessations. Okay, okay. So this topic is quite important, the topic of the two truths, because it helps us to understand that things exist conventionally uh, when you don't analyze to search them, search for them, but... When you do analyze to search for them, then they are ultimately unfindable, okay? So it seems like a paradox that they're ultimately unfindable, but they exist when you don't search for them. But as you learn the topic, it becomes a little bit clearer, and this is quite an important point. Um, Also, this topic helps us understand that the two truths are two different objects. They're not two different perspectives on one object, okay? So the two truths are are different objects, and they're both valuable, and they're both useful, okay? The ultimate truth lets us know the actual mode of how things exist, yeah? But if you want to get from here to Spokane, the ultimate truth isn't going to show you how to do it, okay? And the mind perceiving the ultimate truth is not going to get you to Spokane, So, you know, for practical things in our daily life that regard all the diverse kind of phenomena, then we need to understand conventional or veiled truths. Yeah, because the, you know, the Google directions or the map or or your friend in the next seat, uh, they're all the conventional uh, truths that will direct you to Spokane. Okay. But those conventional truths, um, you know, are not the final mode of existence. They're just appearances. 
Yeah, they don't exist in the way they appear. Okay. So each of the different tenant systems has their own way of asserting the two truths. We won't get into that now. Um, but just to say that, you know, that's the way it is. And we'll be talking according to the Prasangika Madhyamakas, which is considered um, by the Galupas the, the uh, most accurate tenant system. Okay, so definition of conventional or veiled truths. Yeah, it's one of these definitions that really tells you a lot. Okay, they're objects found by a conventional reliable cognizer perceiving a false object of knowledge. Well, that does tell us something, okay? So their object is a false object of knowledge. Here, false means that the object does not exist the way it appears. Okay? And what this means is things appear to us to have their own inherent nature, something in them that makes them what they are, but in actual fact they don't exist that way. Okay, So it's a false appearance. We've had this false appearance since beginningless time. We've never been without it. So it's very difficult for us to recognize what it is. And let alone not recognizing the false appearance, we don't even recognize the ignorance that holds this false appearance to be true. Because it's always appeared to us, and so we just think, well, yes, it must be true, this must be the way things exist. So it's only through investigation and examination and analysis that we come to see that the way things appear to us, they can't possibly exist in that way, that the appearance is false. Okay? So it's the, you know, what appears to our eyes and our senses is false. Yeah, and the actual emptiness, the actual mode that they, uh, in which they exist, doesn't appear to our eyes. It's right here in the phenomena. It's not in some other galaxy, but it doesn't appear to our senses. And we have to um, tap into a different kind of mind. It's called a yogic direct perceiver to actually know uh, emptiness directly. Yeah, we can't see it or hear, hear it, or taste it, or touch it. Okay. Okay. And ultimate truths are objects found by reasoning consciousnesses distinguishing the final mode of existence. When it says reasoning consciousnesses, it means um, another translation for that is probing awareness. So it doesn't mean that somebody's always reasoning and making up arguments and syllogisms and talking to themselves, analyzing everything. You know, when you're trying to understand what emptiness is, yes, you're analyzing and kind of making syllogisms and all. But when you get to the higher stages of meditation, you're using your mind to probe how things exist, but you're not working conceptually like that with language, you know, as if you're in a philosophy class or something. Okay, so sometimes the, the term is rickshay. So some people translate it as reasoning consciousness. Uh, Jimpa says it's, it's better to call it probing awareness. Okay. Ultimate truths are objects found by a reasoning 
by a probing awareness, distinguishing the final mode of existence. Okay, so Nagarjuna says, and these are three verses from the Karikas, uh, chapter 24. The Buddha's teaching of the Dharma is based on two truths, a truth of worldly convention and an ultimate truth. Those who do not understand the distinction between these two truths do not understand the Buddha's profound teaching. Without depending on the conventional truth, the meaning of the ultimate cannot be taught. Without understanding the meaning of the ultimate, nirvana is not attained. Okay, so in the first verse, let me read it again. The Buddha's teaching of the Dharma is based on two truths, a truth of worldly conventions and an ultimate truth. Okay, so in that verse, he's um, Nagarjuna emphasizing that statements in the Buddha's teaching should be understood within the context of the two truths, the conventional and the ultimate. Okay, the second verse explains that under... Uh, Understanding the true truths and the distinction between them is important uh, because if we don't correctly understand them, then we'll not really understand correctly the the Buddha's the meaning of the Buddha's teachings, and we'll be able we'll be unable to distinguish accurately what exists from what doesn't exist, you know, and what isn't a reliable mind. Uh, and what is not. And then the third verse, uh, I'll read that one again. Without depending on the conventional truth, the meaning of the ultimate cannot be taught. Without understanding the meaning of the ultimate, nirvana is not attained. Okay, so the third verse um, conveys that conventional truths are the means to arrive at the meaning of the ultimate truth. So without depending on conventional truths, like language and concept, like we're using right now, um, there's no way we, we can actually understand what uh, ultimate truth is. Because like I said, it doesn't appear to any of our typical mental states. So we have to first approach it uh, through... Uh, reasoning and using concept, um, conventional truths to con- to learn and think about these things. Okay, so we, uh, without correct instructions, we won't know how to meditate on emptiness. So it's not just a question of sitting down and vacating all thoughts from your mind, and it's not just a question of sitting there until Eureka, you got it. Yeah, because. We have no what, no idea what it is we're supposed to get. <laughs> and our mind can make up all sorts of things. We have a very creative mind. We can have all sorts of flashes and spiritual experiences and this and that. But it doesn't mean that they're all realizations of emptiness or even that they're reliable cognizers themselves. Okay. Okay. Um yeah, so we need the co- the con- correct instructions, which are given through the conventional truths, to know the ultimate truth, uh, and we need to know the ultimate truth so we can attain nirvana. Okay, so 
Don't just think that because we call ultimate truths false, because they don't exist the way they appear. Don't think... Veiled truths, you said ultimate truths. Oh, conventional truths, or veiled truths. Don't think that because they don't exist the way they appear, that they're inconsequential and you don't need to learn about them. Okay, we do need to learn about them. Yeah. I mean, just even, I mean, to realize emptiness, we need to learn about them. But to stay alive, we need to learn about them too. We have to put in a new water system, and that's a conventional truth. And if we don't put in another water system, the state's not going to okay things, and the Abbey won't exist. So, you know, there's a purpose to conventional truth, and we have to understand them and use them. It's not just, you know... You say, well, since they're false and they don't exist the way they appear, just throw them out. They're useless. That, that's not true at all. Okay. Now, the basis for dividing things into conventional or veiled uh, and, uh, and um, ultimate truths, the, what we're dividing is knowable objects. Okay. So these are uh, in the... Um, what's the definition from our debate text of knowable objects? I thought you memorized these a few weeks ago. Knowledge objects? Object and knowledge. It's actually a better translation is knowable objects. Knowable objects is a better translation. Okay, that's the definition. That which can be known by awareness. Okay. Yeah. So that is synonymous with what? Hmm? Yeah, so what else is it synonymous with? Hidden phenomena. Okay, okay. hidden phenomena. Object. Object. Object for omniscient consciousness. Yeah, an object Established for omniscient. Base. Established base. Established base. Phenomena. Phenomena. Objects of comprehension. Okay, object of comprehension. You're missing one. Existence. Existent. Existent. Yeah. What is, what is knowable objects? Is that not object No, it's a different, trans- it's a better translation for object of knowledge. Or some, some people say knowledge object or object of knowledge. I think a better translation of the term is knowable object. Okay, so it's an object that can be known by a reliable cognizer. Otherwise, we think knowledge, object of knowledge. I don't know about you, but you know, I associate knowledge with what you get at at a university. So it's an object of knowledge. It's something you study, or you know, like that. That's not the meaning of it at all. Okay, it's knowable objects. Okay, non-existence are not knowable objects. Okay, so visions seen in a drug-induced hallucination. Okay, turtles' mustaches and weapons of mass destruction in Iraq are all non-existence. Jerks? Oh, what do you mean? I think those... <laughs> aren't you one? Don't, aren't you an illustration of a jerk? 
<laughs> okay, inherently existent jerks. <laughs> and actually, if we have properly trained the mind in compassion, jerks don't exist at all. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so like I said, the two truths aren't two ways of looking at one thing. They're distinct objects, and they are apprehended by two different types of cognizers. So two very different kinds of minds. So conventional reliable cognizers operate within the framework of language and everyday perception, where we're concerned with the attributes and the properties of objects, and we describe, you know, what qualities they have and how they function. And so these cognizers know veiled truths. Okay, so veiled truths and conventional truths are synonymous. Yeah, we'll get into that. There's different etymologies of the Sanskrit word for that. And then probing awarenesses, uh, which may be conceptual in the sense of when we're doing analysis, you know, an, uh, conceptual analysis, or they may be non-conceptual, yeah. Um, so the probing awarenesses are what know the ultimate truth, and that is beyond the limits of our everyday perception and our everyday way of speaking. Okay? So um, the, pro the probing awareness inquires, what is the ultimate mode of existence phenomena? How do things really exist? Okay? So the, these ultimate, um, the probing awareness you know, isn't satisfied with how things appear, they're delving deeper, you know, how does this really exist? Yeah, we call this an apple. What really is an apple if you search for an apple within this object? Okay, so, um, yeah, so the, the, uh, the conventional reliable cognizer, it knows uh, the, the apple, for exam example, but the probing awareness knows that the apple lacks true existence. Okay, it's looking at the deeper mode of existence. Okay, so here's an, a quote from Chandrakirti. He said, the Buddha said that all phenomena have two natures, those found by perceivers of the true and of the false. Objects of perceivers of the true are suchness. Suchness is a synonym of emptiness. Objects of perceivers of the false are veiled truths. So there he says it. It's a, it's a quotation. Okay. So an object found by a direct perceiver of the true is an object uh, that exists in the way it appears, and it's an ultimate truth, okay? The ultimate truths are objects that are found by these probing awarenesses that perceive phenomena as they actually are, okay? Um, a, an object seen by the false Okay. Oh, I should let me say more about the ultimate truth first. So they're non dualistically realized by non conceptual, direct, reliable cognizers, which are their principal, the principal mind that knows them. 
Okay, so since only emptinesses are true in this way, remember true means exists the way it appears. So emptiness is an absence of inherent existence, and it itself is empty of inherent existence. And so when you perceive emptiness directly, you perceive it as empty. Okay, then an object by seen by perceivers of the false... Okay. Now, perceiver of the false is a mind under the influence of ignorance. Okay? So those are veiled truths. They're falsities because they don't exist the way they appear. They appear truly existent. In other words, they appear to have their own inherent essence or something inside them that makes them what they are. But they don't actually have that. They appear to have that essence, but they don't exist the way they appear because they're empty of having that kind of essence. Okay? Um, So that's why they're called falsities. Yeah? And their reality, their ultimate nature, is veiled or concealed by ignorance. So that's why they're called veiled truths. Because, you know... The, the gong and the tissue and all these, all these conventional truths, we can't see their emptiness. Their emptiness is veiled, yeah, not by something on the side of the object, but by something on the side of our mind, okay? Our minds are, are covered. Uh, our minds have the veil of ignorance, And so we can't see these objects as they really exist, as they really are, okay? And so they appear in a false way to us, okay? So their ultimate nature is veiled or concealed. So sometimes another translation, instead of veiled truths or truths for a concealer, you know, it all has the the feeling of, you know, Something's getting obscured there, okay? Okay. Now, having said that their ultimate nature is veiled or concealed by ignorance, that does not mean that the existence of these objects is established by ignorance because ignorance is a wrong consciousness. Okay? So ignorance is a, a, yeah, a totally erroneous consciousness. It sees things that are empty of inherent existence as having inherent existence. So ignorance apprehends the exact opposite of how things actually exist. Okay? So ignorance, being a wrong mind, it can't, be the one that certifies or establishes the existence of something because it's a totally wrong mind, okay? It would be like saying uh, somebody who's high on acid having all kinds of hallucinations is qualified uh, that their sense consciousness can establish uh, things, how things actually exist. They can't. The person's hallucinating, Okay. Okay. So ignorance veils objects. So they're called veiled truths. Ignorance itself is the veiler. 
It doesn't establish the existence of these veiled objects, the veiled truths. Okay. What establishes their existence? What we call a conventional reliable cognizer. So that's just a mind that addresses, that sees conventional or veiled objects on a superficial level. And that conventional uh, valid cognizer is not looking at the deeper level of how objects exist. It's the mind that can say, this is a microphone, and that's a telephone, and that's a gong, and that's a clock, and this is a cup. Okay? So conventional valid cognizers, conventional reliable cognizers, are also very, very useful. They don't see the ultimate mode of existence. But if we want to function in this world, we better have some conventional uh, reliable cognizers. Otherwise, we're going to be in big problem, big trouble. Okay? So what would be an example? Well, a conventional valid, uh, conventional reliable cognizer, it knows that the when we look in the mirror... Okay, it looks like there's a person in the mirror. Yeah, there's no person in the mirror, is there? The conventional reliable cognizer is the mind that knows there's no person in the mirror, even though the person in the mirror appears. Okay, but that conventional cognizer doesn't know the ultimate nature of the reflection, the ultimate nature of the mirror, anything like that. But it's a very useful mind because if you think there's a real person in the mirror, yeah, then you're going to have a hard time functioning in this world because you're going to have these conversations with this person in the mirror all day. But that person just says the same thing to you that you say to them. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you might get a, go a little buggy, yeah, okay, and you might get a little frustrated, you know, kind of like a baby, yeah, a baby can't, doesn't know that the baby they see in the mirror is, is a reflection, they think there's a real baby, so they want to play with it, yeah, so you can see, if, if you don't know conventional truths, in a, in a reliable way, you're not going to be able to function, okay? If we can't discern the, di- the... If we can't discern that the music doesn't belong in the middle of a Dharma talk... <laughs> yeah, then we're going to have some problems, okay? So it's like, you know, last, night we were ta- or last week we were talking about the snake and the rope... Okay, so the conventional valid, conventional reliable cognizer can tell the difference between a snake and a rope. Yeah, and when you need to tie a package for the post office, you use the rope, you don't use a snake. Okay, (laughs) so you know, there's, there's conventional reliable cognizers are quite important. And, you know, a lot of our uh, education in school is based on learning concepts and names for objects, how they function, how to distinguish, you know, what exists and what doesn't exist, uh, just on a conventional way. 
And so that's, you know, our whole world depends on that kind of, of knowledge. Okay. Even though all those things appear falsely to our mind and they don't exist the way they appear. Okay. They still function even though they have a false appearance. Okay. So, um, the veiled truths or conventional truths are objects dualistically realized by the direct reliable cognizers that cognizes them. They are truths for ignorance because they do not exist as they appear, not uh, because only ignorant people perceive them. So they're truths for ignorance, but ignorance does not determine, does not certify or establish their existence. Okay, so apples, people, and mental factors are examples of veiled or conventional truths. Their actual mode of existence is an ultimate truth. Okay, yeah. Apples, people, and mental factors are examples of veiled or conventional truths. So all these things here are examples of veiled truths or conventional truths. But the way they actually exist is an ultimate truth. Okay? However, these... uh, Okay, so these conventional things appear truly existent, although they aren't. Yeah? So they're truths for ignorance. However, truly existent objects do not exist. So things that appear truly existent, although they are not, can exist. But truly existent objects are totally non-existent. So the reflection in the mirror can appear to be a person, although it is not, and it can function, you know, if you want to, pop your pimples or something, yeah, but the face in the mirror does not exist. A real face in the mirror is totally non-existent, isn't it? There's no person in the mirror. The reflection of a face in the mirror exists, but a person in the mirror does not exist. When you watch TV, yeah, There's all this stuff going on on the screen, okay? So the the appearance of all these people on the screen exists, and it functions because, you know, it tells us story, it gives us news and documentaries, but there are no people on that screen, and there's no people in that, uh, yeah, in that television, okay? So it's like that. Truly existent things are totally non-existent. But things that appear truly existent, although they are not, exist, and they exist falsely. Because they appear one way, although they exist in another way. Okay, so now we're going to get into the meaning of samvirti. So that's uh, a Sanskrit word that 
has three etymologies. So these are only etymologies. They're not definitions. But um, it gives us some idea of what we're talking about and why the, the term in Sanskrit, samvirti, can be translated as, um, oh, samvirti satya, can be translated as conventional truth and as veiled truth. Okay, but in English, those two, and, and in Tibetan, you know, then those two words give you very different feelings. Yeah, but they're derived from the same Sanskrit word. So there's three meanings for the Sanskrit word samvirti, veiled, interdependent, and conventional. Okay, so remember, these are not definitions, but just general etymologies. Okay, so veiled truth and conventional truth are synonymous, although the Sanskrit term samvirti satya is translated as one or the other of those depending on the context. So veiled truths, let's look at it that way. Veiled truths or truths for a veiler. The veiler is ignorance. Yeah, they appear true to an ignorant mind. So true means that they exist the way they appear. Okay, so ignorance, the veil, veils, conceives, or obscures the ultimate nature of these phenomena, their emptiness. And instead, ignorance superimposes a false way of existence or an erroneous way of existence, true existence. And so ignorance apprehends things exactly the opposite way of how they exist. Okay? We look at, I mean, just when you look at this, when you come in this room, this is a cup, right? When you look at it, is it clearly and obviously a cup to you? Do you have, could you, do you look at it and feel like any jerk who walks in is going to know it's a cup? And it's not a giraffe. Yeah, doesn't it appear that way to you? I mean, this is a cup. And it's, it has the nature of a cup that's like there. It's radiating out cupness. There's no way you could call it a giraffe or a chrysanthemum or something like that. Because it doesn't have that nature. It looks like it's, you know, inside this. I mean, this is a real cup. Isn't that the way it appears to you? Okay, that's the false appearance. When you look at a person, yeah, does it appear to you that there's a real person there? That there's not just a body and a mind, but there's a real person, something special, you know, a, a person. Doesn't it look that way when you look at everybody? Yeah, that, that's not how we exist. Yeah, it looks like, you know, oh, there's something inside of us that makes us who we are, our soul, our self with a capital S, you know. It looks that way, and we think that way, but when you search for that, you can't find it. Yeah. Okay, so 
While veiled truths, in fact, lack true existence, they appear truly existent. So all phenomena except emptinesses are veiled truths, okay? Because only emptiness appears the way, exists the way it appears to their primary cognizers. So emptiness may appear truly existent to an inferential cognizer, but it is not a veiled truth because Arya's meditative equipoise directly realizing emptiness is the primary cognizer of emptiness, not the inferential one. Okay, so while ultimate truths or emptinesses exist the way they appear for wisdom, veiled truths are true only from the distorted viewpoint of ignorance, which veils the actual way in which phenomena exist, their empty nature. So although they are called truths, veiled truths are not actual truths because they don't exist the way they are. Okay, they only appear true to an ignorant mind. So they're called truths because they appear truth to an, true to an ignorant mind, but they are not truths. Okay. So lots of times, I mean, we call things by something that they aren't. Yeah, this is kind of common language. Okay, so veiled truths are not truths, they're falsities. Why are they falsities? Because they appear one way, truly existent, while they exist in another way, empty of truly true existence. Okay, so v- while ordinary beings and aryas, so aryas have directly realized emptiness, non-conceptually, they both perceive veiled truths. Ordinary beings are deceived regarding the false appearance of veiled truths. We think that they're actual truths. We think they actually exist the way they appear. Whereas Aryas who have seen the ultimate truth, the emptiness, when they see veiled truths and veiled truths appear truly existent to them, they know that that's a false appearance. So for them, these things are falsities. So to to know that something is a false object, false meaning not existing the way it appears, you um, have to realize emptiness. Yeah? And, uh, And I think it... I don't know if it's a, if it requires a probably requires a direct perception of emptiness, but you have to realize that the conceived object of the grasping at true existence does not exist. Yeah. So only then can uh, you establish these knowable objects that are veiled truths as falsities. So although. We may have a conventional reliable cognizer now that establishes the table as existing. Yeah. Our conventional valid, uh, reliable cognizer does not establish them as veiled truths because 
are we're ordinary beings, we haven't realized emptiness. And so you have to realize emptiness to know that something is a veiled truth. Okay? So Aryas who have, uh, remember Aryas, someone who's, who's realized emptiness conceptually, but who hasn't necessarily eradicated all ignorance and seeds of ignorance from their mind. Okay, so Aryas, there's different degrees of Aryas. So the Aryas who have removed some degree of ignorance know that tables and people do not truly exist, although they appear to be. They know these things are falsities, and they can establish them as veiled truths. Okay, so in relation to Arya's subsequent wisdom, when they're not in meditative equipoise on emptiness, and that subsequent wisdom that understands illusory-like appearances, to that mind, these things are not true. They are mere veilings. Okay? Mere veilings or mere conventionalities. However, only three Aryas, so the, the Shravaka and solitary realizer, Arhats, and the Bodhisattvas on the eighth ground and above, yeah, and Buddhas, only they have eliminated all ignorance. So lower Aryas may occasionally have manifest ignorance, and other afflictions. They don't see things as true. And in their, in their perspective, things are mere veilings. Okay? So this does not mean that those things are not veiled truths for them. Because when we hear, oh, they're mere veilings, then we think, oh, well, they're not veiled truths for them. Because these Aryas know that these things are not true, even though they appear to be true. Why do they know that? Because they have realized emptiness. Okay? But it doesn't mean that these things are not veiled truths for them. And it doesn't mean that the conceived objects of the grasping, grasping of true existence are veilings for Aryas, because such conceived objects truly existent tables and people, don't exist at all. Okay? So when we have an ignorant mind that's grasping true existence, the conceived, the apprehended object may be the table. Yeah? The conceived object is a truly existent table. The table exists, the truly existent table is totally non-existent. Okay, so the wisdom realizing emptiness sees that the conceived object of ignorance does not exist. Okay, so this is getting back to that thing that things that appear to exist truly can exist, but truly existent things do not exist. Okay, okay, so in short, although from this perspective, of the three Aryas, the uh, Arhats, the Eighth Bodhisattva, uh, and about the pure Bhumi Bodhisattvas and Buddhas, although from the perspective of those particular three Arhats who've eliminated ignorance and all the seeds of ignorance, uh, from their pers- perspective, these things are not truths. They still know them to be veiled truths 
because they know uh, ignorance sees them as true. Okay, so basically the whole thing is that there's still only two categories of phenomena, veiled truths and ultimate truths. So when we say things are mere veilings, it doesn't mean that they're no longer uh, uh, veiled truths. It just means that from the perspective of an Arya, an Arya knows that they don't exist as they appear and that they're false. Okay. Ultimate truth, emptiness, on the other hand. Emptinesses are dependent. So conventional truths, veilings are also dependent. Ultimate truths are also dependent. Okay? So don't go thinking because they're called ultimate truths that they're independent of everything else. That's completely wrong. Okay? They're dependent. Ultimate truths are dependent. They also lack inherent existence yeah what are they dependent on they're dependent on the the object that they are the emptiness of because so we can't have the emptiness of the gong without having the gong the emptiness of the gong depends on the gong the gong depends on the emptiness of the gong the two exist together you can't have one without the other yeah, they're both there. If the gong disappears, you no longer have the emptiness of the gong. There's no way to make the emptiness of the gong disappear without making the gong itself disappear. Okay. So the emptiness of the table depends on the table. That's the basis of that emptiness. Yeah, the emptiness of the table also depends on the reliable cognizer that certifies the emptiness of the table. Okay, so while emptiness exists conventionally, because conventional existence is the only kind of existence there is, emptiness is not a conventional truth or a veiled truth because it is not false. It exists the way it appears to its primary cognizer. So the way words are used in this section, you have to pay very close attention, okay? Because ultimate truths do not ultimately exist. Ultimate truths exist conventionally. Okay, why? Because ultimate... ultimate existence yeah is something's final mode of existence okay and their final mode of existence yeah is is that they're empty everything that exists exists conventionally meaning that it is apprehended by a conventional, reliable cognizer. Okay? Emptiness conventionally exists because if it ultimately existed, that would mean that it was findable through ultimate analysis. That means that when you search for emptiness, you could find an inherently existent emptiness. Okay. To exist ultimately means to exist inherently. 
But we just said inherent existence is totally non-existent. So nothing exists ultimately, although emptiness is an ultimate truth. Okay? Everything that exists exists conventionally and you know, and it is a conventional reliable cognizer that establishes that. Okay? So the only kind of existence there is is conventional existence. There's no such thing as ultimate existence. Now you're going to say, why does a conventional reliable cognizer establish emptiness? Because the mind perceiving emptiness directly does not say, oh, that is emptiness. It's only after you've come out of the meditative equipoise that then the mind knows, oh, I realized emptiness. Right. So, so there's some way of saying it. I can't remember it exactly how it is. The, the, the mind directly realizing emptiness knows emptiness, but to establish the existence of emptiness, that's done after you come out of meditative equipoise by a conventional reliable cognizer. But the mind, the, the uh, meditative equipoise of emptiness directly knows emptiness. Yeah, the conventional reliable cognizer does not directly know emptiness. It's the one that establishes the existence of emptiness. So there's a difference between emptiness and the existence of emptiness. Okay, This sounds all very, very confusing the first time you hear it. But after you get used to it, then it begins to make some sense. Okay, so whatever appears true for a veiled knower, a veiled consciousness, is not necessarily a veiled truth. Okay, so a truly existent lamp appears true to a consciousness grasping at true existence, but it is not a veiled truth because it does not exist. Okay, so a truly existent lamp, a lamp that has its own essence inside that makes it what it is, that appears to our eye consciousness or whatever, okay? But such a truly existent thing, or it might appear to our mental consciousness, like to, to people um, in the lower schools who assert true existence, you know, to their mental consciousness, everything is appearing truly existent. Yeah, but just because something appears truly existent to a mind doesn't mean that thing exists because truly existent things are non-existent. Okay, so what appears to our senses is the dependent arising phenomena mixed together with the appearance of true existence. And we can't discern the difference between those two. Okay. So what appears, that dependently arising phenomena mixed with true existence, that appears 
You know, that object exists, but if we're grasping that object to be an inherently existent lamp or whatever, an inherently existent lamp does not exist at all. This sounds very strange, but you got to think about it. Then it, it makes sense, okay? So, a truly existent lamp appears true to a consciousness grasping true existence, but it is not a veiled truth because it does not exist. Nevertheless, the lamp is a veiled truth. The truly existent lamp is non-existent, the lamp itself is a veiled truth. So we believe that those two things are the same. We can't differentiate them. But one exists and the other one doesn't. Okay. So although veiled truths are true from the viewpoint of ignorance, ignorance does not establish their existence because ignorance is an erroneous consciousness. Okay, so while the true, uh, the conceived object of in- ignorance, for example, a truly existent cup, does not exist at all, a cup does exist. The cup is a veiled truth. The truly existent cup, it, it does not exist. The cup is established by a conventional, reliable cognizer. The t- a truly existent cup has no mind that establishes it. Okay, so uh, Jason Kappa says, um, ignorance grasps true existence, and thus the object grasped by it does not exist even conventionally. And whatever is a truth for a veiler necessarily exists conventionally. Okay, so this is coming back to veiled truths appear to ignorance, but ignorance and ignorance grasps them as true, but ignorance cannot certify them or establish them. Failed truths because, you know, ignorance sees only truly existent things. Okay. So it is not the case that veiled truths exist only for an ignorant mind. Because if that were so, then as soon as we realized emptiness, all the veiled truths, the whole world and the universe would disappear. So realizing emptiness does not change the status of existence of the world. Yeah, it doesn't make things disappear. Things still exist, but the way we see them is totally different than the way we saw them before. Okay, here's something from Chandrakirti's commentary on the 400. Attachment and so forth superimpose characteristics such as attractiveness or unattractiveness only upon the inherent nature of things that ignorance has superimposed. Okay, therefore, they do not work apart from ignorance, they depend on ignorance. This is because ignorance is the main affliction. So you have this dependent arising phenomenon. Ignorance superimposes true existence on top of it, saying, oh, it has a real essence that 
makes it what it is. It exists from its own side, independent of everything else. And that's what ignorance superimposes on that, on, on the, you know, on what? On the computer. Okay. Then attachment is based on superimposing attractiveness. Okay, ignorance has imposed the the inherent existence. Then based on seeing something as, you know, having its own independent essence, then we say, oh, that independent essence is beautiful. This computer is so fantastic. It lets me do this. It lets me do that. My friends will think I'm so wonderful because I have it. This is a real status symbol. And I'm just so attached to this computer because I can do so many wonderful things with it. Okay? So you can see how based on ignorance imputing or projecting inherent existence, then we project or or impute truly existent attachment, or truly existent attractiveness to this object. So it's not just an inherently existent computer. It is the most fantastic computer you've ever seen. Okay? Now, you may not resonate with my little, you know, computer here, but think of your car. Think of somebody you're attached to. Yeah. Aren't they just the most wonderful thing that ever came along? Yeah. So that is attachment. Yeah. Superimposing characteristics such as attractiveness. And anger superimposes characteristics of unattractedness upon the inherent nature of things. Okay, so what that boils down to is basically we go around thinking that we're seeing things correctly and we're usually hallucinating. Okay, because we think there really are truly existent objects and when we're attached to someone or something, we think they really have those good qualities in themselves. When we're angry at somebody, those people really have those foul qualities in and in themselves. Yeah? That's the way we see things. So we get attached, we cling, we have aversion, we can't stand this. Yeah, it's all hallucination, you know, and uh, it, it sounds like hallucination. Wait a minute, I don't, I don't take hallucinogenics. I'm not hallucinating. I'm seeing reality, you know. And this is where the the story I always tell about Lama Yeshe when everybody came up from Freak Street in in Kathmandu to attend the the teachings at Gopan, and they're saying. Oh, Lama, what do you think about taking drugs and meditating at the same time? You know, you can really see some far-out things. And Lama said, you're hallucinating already, dear. You don't need any drugs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
I were looking, well, what do you mean? No, I see reality. And he's saying, no, you don't. Okay. So the conceived objects of these innate afflictions, such as attachment and anger, can be refuted by reasoning and do not exist even conventionally. So that beauty that we see in the object of attachment, the awfulness we see in the object of emptiness, doesn't exist even conventionally. Okay? So here we must differentiate two types of objects of innate minds. The first are those that reasoning cannot refute. For example, money, which is posited by a conventional reliable cognizer, exists conventionally and cannot be refuted by reasoning. Okay. The second yeah, objects are those that reasoning can refute. The money that is seen as desirable by a mind filled with greed does not exist even conventionally. In this case, the extreme allure of the money is superimposed and exaggerated. So differentiating these is important in order to differentiate an afflicted mind from a conventional reliable cognizer and to differentiate a non-existent from an existent object. So this is a delicate procedure (laughs) For we must be able to negate inherently existent objects and also be able to establish conventionally existent ones. Okay, so when, when we look at money, yeah, and there's no ignorant, there's uh, no attachment in our mind, there still may be ignorance that sees the money as inherently existent. But we're not superimposing like, oh, that money is fantastic. I want it because as soon as I get it, then I can buy this and this and this, and then I'll be rich and people will think I'm great and blah, 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 blah. It just knows, you know, a regular mind, yeah, a conventional reliable cognizers, there's money. It can be used for buying things. That's it. Okay. So that's that's one kind of innate mind that's just a conventional valid cognizer. Then our innate attachment isn't satisfied with there's money and it can be used for buying things. The innate attachment says, wow, that money is so valuable. If I want it... I need it if I have that. Some really good things are going to happen to me. So all of that desirability is being projected by our mind. From the side of the the money, it's only pieces of paper. There's no desirability that exists in those pieces of paper in and of itself. It's only because as a society, we've agreed that when you have pieces of paper that look like that, that then you can trade them for real things that that you can do something with. The actual pieces of paper, you can't do much with. They don't even make good toilet paper. 
<laughs> yeah, but you can use them to get all sorts of things that you know function in different ways that are very helpful to your life. So in that regard, we're the ones who made money that valuable. From the side of the paper itself doesn't mean anything. Yeah. The same with your degree. Whatever degree you get that you're so proud of, I have this degree, here's my certificate, my diploma with the golden seal and enthroned in the golden um, frame hung up in my office so that everybody comes in and can see, you know, look how intelligent I am, look how successful I am, I have this certificate this diploma from a good university that means i'm trustworthy and i'm reliable and i know a lot and that's all you can know that through seeing that diploma from that university yeah that diploma is one piece of paper that's all it is yeah Everything else, the value of having it and what it indicates, it does not come from the side of that piece of paper. It comes totally from our mind that imputes all those meanings on that piece of paper. Yeah. If you, if somebody comes in the room who's never seen a diploma and doesn't know what it is, or what it symbolizes, like, so what? You know, why are you hanging these things on your pieces of paper on your wall? Yeah. Why don't you, why don't you, if you're hanging pieces of paper on the wall, why don't you, you know, hand, hang your, your uh, receipts from the grocery store on the wall? <laughs> They're pieces of paper, too. You know, they're all paper. They get recycled in the same bin. Why are you putting so much emphasis on the diploma? Okay. All of that comes from our mind. Yeah. As a society. Yeah. Does that piece, we say that piece of paper indicates that a person knows blah, 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 blah. Does that mean that for sure that person knows that? Mm-mm. Yeah. I could hang my diploma on the wall, but you know what? I've forgotten almost everything that of the topic I majored in. <laughs> you know? Can't remember anything. It's, I'm still interested in it. When I go to Russia, I mean, I spent hours talking about Russian history with Venerable Tenzin. But I can't remember anything from what I studied, even though I wrote papers on it and I read books on it. And yeah, gone. But I, I don't even have the diploma anymore. It got some, somewhere, I don't know. My parents have it, except they just sold my parents' house, so maybe they threw it out. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, you know, it's like it's just a piece of paper. Okay. Maybe that's enough for tonight. (laughs) Okay, we'll get into real and unreal next time.
Okay. You want to hear about real and unreal? Give an example of also pieces of paper. Um, so you know, in Singapore, we have the we burn money for the deceased, right? Oh, and it's yeah. like a piece of paper with a nice piece of gold foil in the middle. Yeah. So there was a French exchange student who visited me in high school, and then she bought some of that paper just like as an exotic thing. And then when I went to visit her in France, she had framed up these pieces of paper and put them on her wall. And when I saw this, I was like, "How could you do this? This is terrible bad luck." And she's like. This is France. Nobody knows that. This is like some exotic Chinese thing. And she had given them to all her friends as souvenirs. <laughs> and I was just horrified. Why is it bad luck? Because it's the money for the dead. <laughs> you know, as in, for me, immediately seeing this, and you know, it has the bank of hell or whatever yeah. on it. I was like, <gasps> how could you put that? If it's bad luck, why do you send it to your dead relatives? They did. I don't know. <laughs> and why? Why does everybody assume their relatives are born in hell? Yeah, but you know, just the the gut, <laughs> but that you know, the gut response yeah, of that, response. and how she, how she was like, oh please, it's like adorable and exotic and yeah, yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. I had a question about um, emptiness and its um, dependence on a on an impermanent item, such as the gong. Mm-hmm. So the gong is arising and ceasing in every moment. Yeah. Does each moment of that gong have a separate emptiness? And so is the emptiness arising and ceasing the, even the, though it's No, not? the emptiness is permanent. Yeah. So it doesn't change. But if you divide the gong into moment one of the gong, moment two of the gong, moment three of the gong, then each one of those moments of the gong has its own emptiness. But if you just say the emptiness of the gong, then it refers to all those moments, the emptiness of all those moments of the gong. So all of this is just conceptual, how we divide it up. It's our conceptual mind. It isn't that you can say, okay, here's the emptiness the first moment, here's the emptiness the second. It's not like that. This is division completely made by our conceptual mind. They aren't separate things. From their but moment to moment, the gong is, is changing. It's changing. So but it's, the emptiness is not. So it's. But empty, emptiness can come into existence and go out of existence, but it doesn't arise and cease. So arise and ceasing is what happens with impermanent things. But permanent things, remember permanent doesn't mean eternal. So permanent things can come into existence and go out of existence, but they themselves don't change. The Samvirti Satya could be translated as conventional or veiled truth? Yeah. Yeah, interdependent was another meaning, but they, that one isn't used wisely, widely. Does a, a yoga direct perceiver, perceiver have to be in meditative equipoise? To- they, they usually are meditative equipoises, yeah. I think so. So they're not perceiving conventional reality then? Well, they're perceiving, they're, you can have a meditative equipoise on imp- subtle impermanence. Mm. 